Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined again by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic today. Another beautiful day in Southern California. How's uh, Chicago, Larry? It's a beautiful day today here. It's sunny, no clouds in the sky, and it's only right around 79, 80 degrees. Uh, of course, we got this big Sacred Rose Festival coming up this weekend. Uh, well, coming up this weekend for me. By the time you guys hear this, it will have been last weekend. But uh, more on that in a few minutes, just in terms of some highlights that we're hoping to catch there. And uh, we celebrate a special birthday today in the Grateful Dead world. Yeah, we do. And again, speaking to uh, the idea of uh, recording the show on Wednesday, but actually you know, uh, putting it out live on either Sunday or Monday, uh, there's always a couple day lag. So today being Wednesday, we're recording. It is uh, Oteil Burbridge's uh, birthday. So we want to give a, a big shout out to Oteil and um, sort of look at some of the things that Oteil has done in, in his career. But uh, you want to talk about a person that's touched probably more jam bands than anyone else out there. Maybe Warren Haynes is the only person that's even kind of close. But, you know, you want to talk about someone that's run the gamut of, you know, playing with famous musicians and just great collaborations from Dead & Company to the Allman Brothers being the two largest, but Aquarium Rescue Unit, Tedeschi Trucks Band, BK3, which is Bill Kreutzman's band with Scotty Morawski of Max Creek, um, Vita Blue with Paige McConnell and uh, Russell Batiste. I mean, you name it, man. This guy has done it. It's an insane career. He is. Um, he He's, uh, I really love O'Teal and... Uh, I hate to say that, you know, it took Dead & Co. to really bring him out of the shadows for me. Not that I didn't know he was playing with the Allman Brothers and all of that, but, you know, anytime anybody's going to get on stage with the, the Grateful Dead boys, uh, they always get a, a closer look, and uh, he's never disappointed. Um, uh, his, his playing is precise, his singing is great, and I love his attitude. And uh, there's lots to talk about with O'Teal, and we will. Today being August 29th, 2022, we are celebrating a uh, very big anniversary today from back in August 29th, 1980, when the Grateful Dead made their way into Philadelphia in the tail end of the summer to set up and shop and do a show at the Spectrum. Uh, Rob, right before, I believe, they made their way to New York to begin uh, uh, recording Reckoning in uh, Dead Set. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a really creative period of, um, uh, of the Dead's career when they were doing a lot of acoustic and electric music um, back to back. So, you know, after doing the New York run, I think they went back to just playing electric shows. But, you know, really, really fun period uh, on the East Coast during this uh, during the summer period. Yeah, it really is. And uh, it's, it's a great show. There's lots of good music. And uh, Dan, why don't you kick things off with our uh, introductory tune that's going to run a second or two later than normal, but it's well worth the wait. Way to go. 
Jimmy Rowe, uh, August 29th, 1980. Go ahead, Rob. That is a twangy, twangy Rowe Jimmy, you know, and you listen to the uh, the music before they come back into the verse. It's uh, like, almost like a full slide guitar Rowe Jimmy, which uh, is, is much different than kind of the cleaner way they started playing it later in the 80s and the early 90s. Absolutely. And that is when I'm listening to that, there is it, it does have a... Um, uh, a pedal steel guitar sound to it. And, you know, and you're wondering, uh, you know, where Jerry's making those noises from, but, you know, he's he's got his ways and uh, uh, it's beautiful as always. And, and the thing about that cut is that, you know, that the Hunter lyrics are so wonderful. And the part about, you know, seeing Julie down below on the levee doing the dope pass. So is just always one of those like really vivid images I take away from his lyrics. It's just, I, I always enjoy that one very much. Uh, you know, when you catch it in concert and, uh, you know, Jerry would really, uh, you know, give it a little bit of growl as he sang it and uh, put a little bit of emotion into it. Yeah, I think there's so many lyrics I love in that song. It was always, for me, a, a favorite first set, mid-set, first set song that uh, was one of their, their kind of like mid-tempos that I would look forward to, partially because of the uh, the really creative lyrics in that tune. Absolutely. You know, a, a great first set Jerry ballad and uh, anytime you could just get Jerry up to the microphone for a few minutes with everybody else, leaving them the hell alone. Uh, it was fun. And that was a great one for him to do it with. There's going to be a lot more from that show. Uh, we've got a few more clips as we go through uh, today's episode and they're all uh, fun and entertaining with uh, great music, fun lyrics and uh, the dead at a, uh, a transitional, but uh, you know, pivotal time in their career, right? This is, early Brent we've been listening to a little bit of late Brent from 89 and 90 and you know here he is just kind of stretching his wings and we'll get back and focus on Brent in a minute as well moving over to marijuana so I don't know Rob you know marijuana has now uh, been around for a while in some states uh, certainly states like Oregon and Colorado and Washington they've had their legal adult programs now going on six years we take a lot of this for granted and you know still in states like Illinois you know the people are trying to sell conditional licenses that don't even have property attached to them yet for $10 million. And, you know, people having all of these dreams that they've won the lottery by getting a license. And, you know, my response to my clients always is, you know, be careful what you wish for. What you've done is you've got the right to run a business. It'd be like if you went to McDonald's and paid their franchise fee and they gave you a license to go operate. That's great, but it doesn't guarantee you any success. And there's a lot of McDonald's out there and there's a lot of dispensaries out there and there's a lot of cultivation centers. And while in Illinois, there's not a lot of them numerically. Uh, there is a lot in the sense that, uh, you know, a lot of these people are going to be entering into this market competing against really, really big time MSOs uh, who have had a, a, a good period of time to really get themselves established and, you know, kind of put a little bit of a chokehold on the market. And yet what we're starting to see as we look around the country in some pretty key markets, prices are dropping. Yeah. I mean, first, let me address what you said uh, initially, which is, the fact that these people still, when I say these people and new license holders, still believe that what they're holding is, is that valuable, you know, you've got a different position than I do. As an advocate and as their attorney, you're advising them as to what they can expect. For me, as an investor or someone they're coming to potentially acquire their license, um, I take a, a bit more of a jaundiced view in how I approach that. And, you know, while you might say, oh, yeah, you know, careful what you wish for, my response is more akin to Chevy Chase and vacation, where I go, you know what I think? I think you're fucked in the head. It's like for, for you to think that your license is worth $10 million right now, at a time when like asset prices are falling so fast, you look at some of these uh, some of these states that have come on like Oklahoma cultivation license is worth zero, literally zero. You know, the California cultivation license is worth zero. You know, if you've got a, a state that's just coming on, you know, for instance, all the new ones that are coming on on board in Illinois right now, that's where you still think that you know people still think their assets worth something 
because they haven't hit the realization that, you know, they're trying to sell a license, like just, just a right to operate a business for a higher number than a going concern is for operating a business that's been in business for two, three, four years right now. And it's like not making ends meet because by the time they pay their tax liability, they're coming out net negative on the year. And now these other people come out like, oh, we've got this terribly valuable asset. And you're like, well, the who? Anyone that's potentially a buyer isn't interested in that anymore. You know, like New York just announced 150 new licenses today. Like Kathy Hochul just put it out today. And the vast majority of those are going to go to, to equity applicants, but they've now broken it down by how many, you know, how many different licenses are going to be each geographic territory. I hate to say it that, you know, the value of a license in New York, even for the existing guys, just went down precipitously by that announcement. And then those 150 that are coming on, you know, you still have to build those things out. You still have to put money into it. And okay, if you're going to you know, drop a couple million dollars into uh, the CapEx to build out a facility only to operate a business that's, you know, maybe run rate neutral, that, that's not anything that's valuable. That's that's something that, you know, like, go ahead and make a go of it. If you, can build your, if you can build that business up to actually being something that people want to acquire, great. But the days of having a license and trading on that license, I hate to break everyone out there. Those days are gone. It's just—it's not happening anywhere besides maybe a brand new state that's just coming online with a very limited number of licenses to begin with. But any state that's expanding their program, any state that's coming out with an expansive program to begin with, any state that's got a robust like legacy um, program that's been happening for years, there is no value in a license. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's. It- it makes me laugh only because, you know, this was an industry, you know, when I always talk about meeting Jim Marty in 2013, and I would just remember them making projections out as far as 2025 and beyond and what the market would look like. And, you know, it, it always just showed this lovely, beautiful line arcing upwards ever higher, you know, with the idea that, you, that this market is, you know, can never, you know, fully be tapped out one way or the other. But I think that there was always a lot of, you know, enthusiasm early on and you know until you we we get out and we actually make our products available to all of the marijuana smokers in the country sure there's always a potential market there's always more the problem is is that right now it's a statewide industry it's not a nationwide industry so if you're in illinois well illinois maybe not a great example in all of this for different reasons but oklahoma certainly um you know you're just one of thousands uh, we, we've been seeing articles that just show the, the, the price of marijuana. We, we were reading an article the other day about Michigan and the wholesale flower prices there plummeting because un, uh, similar to uh, Oklahoma, where uh, access to the market was easy, uh, the same in Michigan. And there's a lot of people setting up shop there now and all of a sudden finding that they've invested a lot of money in a cultivation center with a, a very limited market available for the supply they're generating. Yeah, look, and that's it's the great misnomer uh, that's been going on for a long time. You know, going back to the early days of, of predictions, of what was going to happen in two thousand twenty four or two thousand twenty five? Look, the, the compound annual growth rate of the industry is still fantastic. You know, you're going to see um, major growth in the overall legal industry. What people forget to say is that that, that industry has always been here. It's, you know, cannabis has been a hundred billion dollar year uh, annual industry for years. It's just a question of on which side of the line do you reside, on the legal or on the illegal. So, you know, when you actually go out there and tell the investment community, like, look at this Kager, this Kager is so fantastic. It's not from adopting new users. It's just migrating existing users. And uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of new growth, but, but it's very, very small. So, you know, then you've got to get into a, a much more realistic portrayal of what's happening in the market. And that's what I think you were asking about initially, which is what is happening with the, the markets that are now, um, let's call them mature. You know, whether it's a Colorado or a California or a Washington, you know, any of those markets have been around for quite a while. 
you know, they've gotten so beat up by, by taxes. They've gotten so beat up by uh, other extrinsencies that, you know, you're actually watching sales go down in a lot of these markets and they're going down in a pretty meaningful way. So, you know, those sales, it's not like people are using less cannabis. We've, we've talked about this ad nauseum on the show. Those are just returning back to the illicit market. And it doesn't mean that the overall CAGR of the industry isn't uh, still going up because you've got new states coming online, you know, like, uh, um, Missouri, for instance, the medical market, I think it just showed that went up 174% year over year from last year to this year in the medical market. Wow. That's huge growth. You know, you might think it's, that that's fantastic, but you forget that that's still only doing $33 million a month in sales. You know, that's a half a billion dollar a year medical market in, in Missouri. Well, that's, that's not that big a market, but it still helps the overall compound annual growth rate of the industry. When you look at it as a collective 50 state process. So like all these stats are totally skewed. Yes, the market continues to grow. Yes, we're seeing more and more um, uh, dollars being produced by cannabis, but they are not being produced on a state-by-state -state basis with mature markets. The way you think, there is no growth rate in Colorado. That's negative growth. It's negative growth in California. It's negative growth in Oregon and Washington. And that's because um, a lot of people are realizing they can't make it as, as a legal entrepreneur anymore. And you know they're just returning to the illicit market, which means that the illicit market stays less expensive than the legal market. And, People go back to accessing cannabis the way they did traditionally, which is why we now refer to it now as the illicit market, but as the traditional market. You know, it's you're just you're returning to what you knew for years, and dealers are more than happy to to pick up that void. Is it fair to say that legalizing pot has 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 damaged the industry? You know, our our, our crack producer Dan Humiston found a great article for us this week out of the Washington Post from uh, this past Sunday by Scott Wilson talking about the casualties of California legalizing pot uh, and talking about how the growers who went legal uh, and tried to participate in the state program really ran into some problems. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. And I'll let you touch on it in a minute as well, because I know you had some interesting thoughts just about this as compared to other uh, mainstream journalism articles that attempt to go in and address or dissect the, uh, the cannabis market. But the, the message I take away from this article is being legal right now may not be the best possible thing. Yeah, look, it's it's really rare that I give a lot of credit to journalists that cover the cannabis industry because for the most part, they're assigned by whoever their you know desk editor is and they go, hey, go out and find a story and you know try to figure out uh, what's happening in this industry. So it's it's rare that you get a, um, a publication like the Washington Post that puts a, a beat reporter on this that can actually cover the, uh, the, the topics correctly. Hats off to Scott Wilson, man. That guy nailed it. Just knocked the cover off the ball as far as his uh, interpretation of what's happening in the California industry. The thing I loved about the article, and anyone that you know doesn't hit the paywall in the Washington Post, I would highly uh, recommend you read this article if you want to know what's happening in California. Is it's, he goes way back? You know, historically goes way back and says, you know, like, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna start from the beginning of, of this industry, and I'm gonna go up to Humboldt County, and I'm gonna pick an area uh, in Panther Gap, you know, along the Matole River, being the town of Petrolia where, you know, in Petrolia, there was one ridge that used to be kind of up over the coast. And I spent a lot of time on that road. And I spent a lot of time with the early growers up there back in like the mid nineties. And that was like, you know, that was the, the benchmark of, of cannabis back in the mid nineties. And he interviewed, you know, some growers that have been doing that, you know, for 15 years, like they're still relatively new by comparison, but you know, they were there when, when the industry was still the old industry and they've now tried to migrate over the legal industry. And, and the ultimate conclusion was why bother? You know, so we were getting we we're getting so beat up by regulation, by tax. Where you know we used to be outlaws up here, and guess what? We did a hell of a lot better as outlaws that were dodging the cops and dodging camp and dodging you know the the, the county officials. 
than we do now being transparent and try to do it, you know, doing everything right because there is no motivation for us to do it. Prices are dropping to past the point of, um, of us being able to grow at a higher price or sell at a higher price than we uh, produce for. Now we're competing against these major farms down in Southern California. The counties, I, mean, I can't stress this enough, the counties of Mendocino and Humboldt and Trinity are dying. You know, their, their lifeblood for years was the cannabis industry. And if growers up there no longer can make a living, there is no other industry up there. It's not logging. It's not, you know, the things that used to exist. You're, you're going to have a real tough time with counties that had a very, very stable economy because of the cannabis growers that now have you know, next to nothing. As people migrate away from that and give it up, I fear for those counties. And I thought Scott Wilson did a really nice job of talking about the juxtaposition of the old days and the, and the current days. But the California cultivation market is in dire, dire straits right now. And, and whatever Governor Newsom did by suspending the, uh, the cannabis cultivation tax for the next three years, it, that is it's such a minor, minor um, help to these growers by comparison to everything else you've got to do in, in terms of, you know, your, your uh, analytics that you have to do on, uh, on testing uh, in terms of, you know, making sure that you're paying your taxes all the way through in terms of like, you know, your, your 280 tax liability, not just your excise tax. I mean, we're, we're seeing it everywhere there. And I'm guessing you're seeing it, you know, in Michigan right now, which is right next door to you. It's true. We are. And, uh, you know, as we said, there's an article out, you know, addressing this very issue. And again, the, the problem in Michigan is, is no different than anywhere else. Michigan is a large state square footage wise. It's got a lot of uh, rural and um, undeveloped counties. And a lot of those places have tried to take advantage of this and are expanding the market opportunities for people and people are flooding in. Being in Illinois for a while, the Michigan market and, and some people will tell you that the Michigan market still is there. Uh, market of choice in the Midwest. People who live in Chicago will gladly drive an hour and a half over to India, uh, through Indiana and over to Michigan uh, to get to some of those dispensaries and get their hands on some of the strains that are being grown over there. It's such a fine balance to see, right? On the one hand, I love the fact that, you know, in states like Michigan and, and, and Colorado and California and, and Oregon, there's so many cultivators. There's so many people out there. There's so many choices of product. There's so many you know, people who are just who love this and who do everything they can to come up with the next great strain. You know, I, it's not a question of can I sell my marijuana for a lesser price than yours? And it's not a question of how high do I want to go with my price? It's a question of, you know, it's almost a matter of personal pride. Can I grow the best damn weed out there? And, you know, a lot of people flock into that type of an environment where it's allowed. Oklahoma was another great example. And now we're seeing the downside of those markets, right? That, that when you can invite too many people to the party, there's not enough people, especially on the tail end of that rush, who will stop and make the appropriate business determination. Uh, they just go running in and say, I can sell marijuana. I'm going to make millions and this is what I'm going to do. I, you know, but, the, but I'm not sure what the answer is, Rob, because the flip side is what's happened in Illinois. And in Illinois, it was such a restrictive market, uh, first for medical, that ultimately what happened was it gave some of these multi-state operators the ability to, you know, to really launch themselves by going around and snapping up a number of Illinois medical licenses that were available because Illinois' market, as we've discussed in the past on the medical side, was not particularly successful in the way that the state handled it. Now what's happened, though, is, and you know, look, to, to the credit of all of these guys at, at all of these companies, you know, whether it's Curaleaf or Cresco or GTI or Verano, these guys are businessmen and they went out and they made the best of the situation, which was not a strong market in Illinois, but they began to build their brand around the country. And, you know, God love them for doing what they've done for themselves and, and you know, the success that they've brought. But, you know, we've talked on this show before and, and as to whether that's any better, 
because when you have, you know, a group of people who are basically controlling the market and have come up with a formula for marijuana that sells, that kind of takes away the initiative or the motivation to come up with the next great strain, just the initiative to keep cranking out at the level they're cranking out. And Illinois is about to undergo a serious test here. You know, if and when these these new licenses, both for dispensaries and cultivation centers, and now for the first time, infuser licenses uh, actually uh, get issued and people get up and running and get approved and get to open their doors. You know, we're not going to find out overnight, but we'll certainly find out in a reasonable amount of time uh, what this is going to mean to the overall landscape in Illinois and whether having a very tightly controlled market ultimately is any better uh, than having a wide open market. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who likes to go by results rather than predictions when it comes to this kind of thing. But, you know, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. But I think certainly in places like Illinois, we're long past the point where even with these new 170 licenses coming in on the dispensary side and 60 or more on the craft grow side, I think we're past the point where this is ever going to be a small person's market mom and pops and, you know, the local guys and stuff like that, they'll be able to open and run. And look, I, I'm, I'm the first guy to say, I hope I'm wrong, but I just suspect that given everything that they're going to be competing against in this state, um, you know, we'll have some local successes here and there, but I don't you know, think that the guys at Cresco or GTI are going to bed particularly concerned about any of it. No, they're not. And look, the, the, the big difference, the great equalizer is capital, you know, new groups that are coming in just don't have access to it. And even if safe banking were to uh, to pass tomorrow, that only inures to the benefit of the larger groups. It doesn't necessarily inure to the benefit of the small guys. So, you know, you've got predatory lending that's going to go into these small groups. Ultimately, it's going to be debtors or it's going to be lenders that are uh, loaning to own anyway. You know, they're, they're finding ways to uh, to put such um, egregious terms on these things that their goal is just to end up owning the asset and then finding someone else to buy it. And hopefully they've done it in a way that's not going to cripple them in the process. It, it, it's so predatory right now. It's been predatory, but you know, at least now we've got call it ten years of history to see how many companies that um, accepted capital from groups on the expectation that they were going to be able to make it work, and you know, no is lost. Everyone. It, it, it's been the uh, the entrepreneurs that have lost, and it's also been the uh, the the providers of capital, especially the providers of equity, that have lost on these things because you know they are promised these these great dreams of you know businesses that make a lot of money and look at the bottom line is they do produce a lot of revenue they're like people run great businesses i'm not blaming the entrepreneurs i'm not blaming you know the, it's it's the game not the player right it's a truly is that you can run a fantastic cannabis operation and you're still so crippled by you know the um the regulations and then you're also so crippled by whatever capital you accepted that you know if someone's lending to you at a 15 percent coupon it's almost impossible for you to be able to service that debt. Yeah. So whatever you're making is going right back into the, uh, the, the person that loaned you the capital to begin with. You don't have that when GTI and, and Cresco and Cure Leaf and the, you know, the Verano, those guys can borrow at a lower rate. They can always pull money down from the market. They can always, you know, dilute their shareholders and, and raise additional capital. You know, for them, the name of the game right now is scale and saying, you know, can we hold on long enough that we can see a major change in federal legalization? And if we do, then we're still here and we're here with a huge, just massive footprint. And at that point, you know, are we valuable to someone else? That's the waiting game. And the second the federal legalization happens, or even the second you get some major regulatory change that, you know, softens a lot of these, uh, these tax burdens, those guys will take off just like wildfire. Whereas the small guys, you know, they're, they're, I hate to say it, they're dead without knowing it, uh, at least for a lot of them. So, you know, all you would be cannabis entrepreneurs out there, I'm not trying to paint a picture of doom and gloom, 
But it's, um, you know, if, if you're facing off against a, a multi-billion dollar company that has the ability to raise a ton more and your only chance of raising capital is going out to friends and family initially and then going out to some, you know, small like family offices or other groups might lend you some capital at, you know, really egregious rates. I wouldn't recommend it, you know, but I'd say don't do it. That's all great stuff. And, you know, the problem that I see with the legacy growers in the areas that you were mentioning before is that they've lost their California market to some degree, right? I mean, there's still a big portion of their crop, right? Three-fifths of the total California crop each year is sold outside of the state of California. So I, I realize that, you know, states are all coming online and that's all great. But, you know, the fact of the matter is I think there's a lot of states where people would say, look, I don't want to buy from my dispensaries here. I still want to get something on the black market from California or from Oregon. You know, I want really, really good marijuana. I don't want what the guys here are selling, you know, because they, they've realized they can stop at this level and, and, and sell a whole bunch of it. So what happens as the MSOs get bigger and stronger, but then when marijuana goes legal on a federal level and they have the same rules that they have in hemp possibly, right? That it's an open market and, you know, you can't interfere with interstate commerce. And at that point, does that give the legacy growers in California and Oregon and, and Colorado and places like that a new seat at the table? Because now they can really just open up and sell their stuff all over the country. And if so, can the MSOs retool quickly enough to be able to come up with product to match the quality of what you're getting out of the legacy growers? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the ultimate question. It's, that's the timing issue. That's the timing issue that, you know, there's more people right now trying to time the California market or the Oregon and Washington market, you know, with legalization. The reason wine is grown in Napa and grown in Paso Robles and grown in Sonoma and grown in, uh, you know, the Willamette Valley is because that's where grapes should be grown. That's the right place to do it. And ultimately, you know, you can open up vineyards in, in Minnesota, but it doesn't mean people want that wine. With legalization, you know, can the legacy growers come right back up and start, you know, just start crushing through this? The answer is 100%, at least on the flower side. You know, on the processing side, it still makes sense to buy it, you know, locally and say, okay, now I'm going to ship it. Like redundant infrastructure across the country doesn't make any sense. So, you know, do I think there's going to be a, a major equalization in the market at a certain point in time, you know, with legalization? The answer is yes. But then the other question is, are the larger MSOs smart enough to try to be watching this thing so closely that they've got the capital that, you know, at the, at the time uh, appropriate, do these guys just come in and say, okay, now we're going to scoop up as many California assets as possible? I mean, there's definitely groups out there, you know, that, that are looking at that right now. I mean, I sit as the chair of the board of, of Forefront, one of the larger MSOs, you know, out there. And I can tell you that, you know, Forefront's put a big bet on the California market. And it's a long-term bet. It's not a short-term bet. You know, Cresco, you know, did a couple of years ago with their purchasing the distribution company out there. And GTI certainly has, you know, some inroads into California. And, everyone's trying to time California. Everyone's trying to time it. Like when's the appropriate time to get in? You look at these major groups internally in California, like, you know, Glasshouse trying to build out just a massive, massive growth facility in Ventura County or, you know, Stizzy now at, at 30 plus stores, uh, Jungle Boys, you know, doing, doing big stuff and trying to expand Kiva being, you know, the distributor of their own products themselves and trying to migrate into other markets. All of them are saying, okay, if, if we can prove our thesis, if we can prove out our model that as a standalone, we can actually make money in California today. And the second we've got the opportunity to export, we'll be, you know, as competitive, if not more competitive than anyone else out there that's an MSO today, simply because the, the playing field, the, the landscape will have completely and totally changed, uh, allowing them to, to sell their product coast to coast. And that's, you know, I, I can't tell you if it's two years, three years, four years, five years, but the name of the game is, can you show 
you know, at least net neutral or profitability in California today. And if you can, then you're poisoning yourself for just fantastic growth uh, in a couple of years. It's just a question of whether you're, you're willing to weather the storm to, to figure it out. And a lot of groups aren't, and a lot of groups are. And, you know, Forefront certainly is on the side that is. Let me ask you this. Is it your belief based on your experience and interaction with legacy growers I mean, I, I know everybody says that everybody has their price, but, you know, as a legacy grower, uh, you know, prepared to turn over all of their operations to a big multi-state operator and, you know, take their money and go live on an island somewhere? Or are they really motivated to keep their legacy strain alive and say, I'd rather just grow it because I know I grow it well and I can grow it in a quantity and I've got my, you know, my infrastructure is already in place. I've been shipping it all over the world for years. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's completely dependent on the grower. I know plenty of guys in the northern counties, if you offer them the right price, they'd be happily live in Costa Rica the rest of their life. I know other guys that all they've ever wanted to do and all they ever will want to do is be farmers. And they're really good at it. They love what they do. They love spending time with their plants. If they knew they could make a real living doing it again, you have to remember that like when I was in my 20s, I'd go up to Humboldt and I was paying $4,800 a pound, you know, to bring it back to Utah or bring it back to, you know, wherever I was going. You know, now that same pound of weed these days is selling for less than $300. I can buy popcorn bud right now, like a pound of popcorn in, in California, like in Southern California, not even in the Northern counties for a hundred bucks. And that's, that's weed that like when I was 18, 19, would have been better than anything that I was seeing. I mean, like stuff that's testing out at 25% when the stuff I was buying back in the mid-90s was testing out like 17, 18%. So that's a collapse. I mean, that, there, there, there's a huge difference between a commodity that trades for, you know, 100 bucks a pound and something that trades for $4,800 a pound. And granted, it wasn't sustainable to, to stay that high. There was such a, an artificial um, built-in buffer as far as illegality into the original price. And the penalties were so much higher if you got caught. But, you know, nowadays, like, you can't grow like an outdoor pound in the legal market and, and still pay all the excise tax and pay everything else for a hundred bucks a pound. It's, just, it's impossible. We don't know the answer yet. There, there's some growers that are more than happy to stick it out and, and grow. And there's some growers that, you know, say, yeah, fine, you know, give me 15 million bucks and you can have my farm and I'm gone. So we'll, we'll see. But uh, I don't know, man, there, it, it's been a rough slog recently. And I, I feel for a lot of people in the California market, I feel for the growers right now. I feel for the growers in Massachusetts. I mean, prices there are cratering right now. It's absolutely cratering. Uh, Michigan, they're cratering. You know, the only market I can think of, and the only markets in general where, you know, cannabis pricing is going up, are markets that have just shifted from a medical market to an adult use market. And for a brief period of time before infrastructure catches up, there, there's a dearth of available product, but then you hit equilibrium and inevitably blow right past equilibrium and you end up with a glut, which is what's happening in Massachusetts. And everyone's doing their pro formas based on $4,000 pounds. And all of a sudden they go, oh, that's now a $3,000 pound. Oh, now it's a $2,000 pound. Now it's $1,500. Now we don't even know what we're doing because like all of our all of our trim and all of our, you know, anything else that we've blasted to, to DISTI, you know, like we're, we're piling up, you know, pounds and kilos of DISTI right now that we can't get rid of. There aren't enough people to make edibles products. It doesn't represent a big enough part of the market. So now like DISTI prices have gone from, you know, $3 a, a gram down to in California, like, you know, 80 cents a gram on DISTI. It's completely and totally unsustainable. And it's happening in every market where infrastructure is overbuilt. And I mean, like, I wish people had looked at Canada a couple of years ago and watched what happened with Canopy and watched what happened with the Freedom and Aurora and watched those guys overbuild and just said like, okay, we need to start taking some, um, some notes of like, do not do this, but you know, I will point to I'll point to the states and say, "Damn you!" to the uh, to the the regulatory agencies that have allowed this to happen. And again, I'll point to Oklahoma as an example. You can't give out a thousand cultivation licenses. 
you know, like at a certain point, you have to cap the cultivation. You've got to say, what is our addressable market? How much cannabis do we need in that addressable market? And we cap it. And people say, oh, that's unfair competition practices. Okay, well, it's better than watching the entire market collapse because you decide that you're going to be, you know, a bit more, a bit more fair. I mean, everyone, every town is free to say how many um, uh, alcohol licenses there are, whether it's, you know, bar licenses or, or liquor stores. There shouldn't be any difference with cannabis. And the second you open it up and say, okay, you can produce three, four, five X as much as, you know, you can consume, it, it's a recipe for disaster. And we're watching it happen from state to state to state now. So, you know, take note out there, whatever you're seeing happen in California and Michigan and Mass, it's going to happen to your state next. It just is. Well, part of what really bothers me about this, you know, I'm far from an anti-government kind of guy. So, you know, I mean, like I think that government has its places. Sometimes they overreach, sometimes they underreach. But they really screwed up this marijuana stuff on so many levels. And it's, I think it's almost impossible to find a state that has really gotten it right from start to finish and, and looks like they have a, a, a great opportunity going forward. And, and what always amazes me is, that the people who are planning the policy are people who will tell you to your face that they've never smoked marijuana. I've never inhaled. I Nope, not me. No, sir. I wouldn't be running for office if I did that. And the other thing about them is that they're people who are ignorant. And the reason that they're ignorant is because they refuse to change the law to allow our government, our scientists, to do open research on these products so that people could really gain an understanding of all of it. But they don't. And, and here's the thing. You know, we don't have a limit on the number of if, if you want to go open up another 7-Eleven and there's a, a street corner and you can do it, you can do it. I remember used to go in to see the Grateful Dead in Hampton, Virginia every year and they had one main street. And we used to crack up because you could literally stand in one parking lot and look down the street and see the next 7-Eleven. And we were amazed. Who would build a 7-Eleven two-tenths of a mile away from an existing 7-Eleven with the exact same menu, the exact same prices, the exact same everything. And you know, maybe in New York City, you have enough population to support a new one every two blocks, but not in the middle of Hampton, Virginia. And there were seven of them on this stretch of road. So somebody must have sat down and made a business calculation that said, I think I can generate enough money and therefore I'm going to do this. Well, presumably you would expect people to do that with marijuana, but when it becomes marijuana, that common sense seems to go out the window, right? Oklahoma wasn't saying to all of these people, you have to go out there and open it. Look, if you want a license, you can have one, but it's your job to go out and assess the financial situation of it. It's your job to make a determination as to whether, as a business person, is this, a, is this an opportune time to enter this market with this product? And for some reason, common sense kind of seems to go out the window. People are so enthralled with the idea of being involved with marijuana that they divorce themselves from that common sense reality, or at least that's what like it seems to me. Yeah, and the other thing about you know the Oklahoma um, analysis is that what those guys don't realize is that they're now completely and totally flooding the Texas market. They're flooding all these other neighboring state markets that are illicit. So that, you know, these tough on crime governments like in Oklahoma still run by, you know, some, some pretty far right guys. They don't realize that, you know, all they're doing is, is doing the same thing that Kansas and Nebraska and, uh, and, and some other states used to get really cross at, you know, Colorado for allowing, you know, the, the Colorado industry to flood into their state. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Oklahoma right now. I hear stories of like, some of the biggest you know, cultivations in all of the country right now existing in, in Oklahoma, Oklahoma can't consume that kind of cannabis. They, they can consume maybe like one fifteenth or one twentieth of what they're producing. People aren't throwing away pounds of weed. That weed's going somewhere. So, you know, if, if you don't think that you're just, you know, cratering every other market, when I talk about the exacerbation of like some of these issues that are happening overall in the cannabis industry, part of it is, is an illicit market that's so inexpensive now that even if you start giving relief on the legal market, let's say in Illinois or, you know, give it in, uh, in Missouri, 
you know, if you've got a neighboring state like Oklahoma that's going to start flooding your market and flooding with super, super cheap illicit weed, uh, guess what, man? People aren't going to access the legal market. And, you know, if, if Missouri wants to see their medical market go from $33 million a month in sales to $100 million a month in sales, which they easily could, then, then the single best thing they can do is call their neighbors in Oklahoma and tell them to get their shit together. I agree with that, too. And, and I just have to throw it out because I am from Missouri and I always you know, it has to make me choke it up a little bit. But, you know, in Missouri, even with with all of this going on and, and the success we're seeing at their ballot at, at their uh, with their program, an organization down there is opposing the placement of adult use question on the November ballot in Missouri. And they're doing it on technicalities. So oh, the signatures they got weren't the right signatures or this or that. Well, you know, anytime somebody goes to the trouble to count signatures, it's not really a signature issue. It's just the only way they know how to go in and attack the issue. And as long as we have groups, you know, forcing the, the industry to have to go in and defend itself just to get itself on the ballot, that's always going to be a dumb thing too. And, and, the, the the thing about these problems that we're talking about are all predicated on the fact people like to buy marijuana. There's just a, ultimately a limit of how much they're going to buy. But if you ask people, are you going to vote for us to have marijuana in your state? Our experience now, right, is that there's very few states where the voters are going to say no. You know, if given the choice, the voters in most states are going to say yes to some level of marijuana sale in that state. And that just speaks to the overall popularity of marijuana, which exacerbates the problem we're talking about. Because if everybody wants to get their hands on it, it's got to be coming from somewhere. Yeah. And look, my my reaction to the, the nimbyism, the, the nimbyism that exists right now in Missouri that's you know stopping this from going on the ballot or the, the legislators that are you know using these technical issues to prevent it from going on the ballot. Do you know what you just did? You just allowed the Oklahoma market to flood your state. That's all you've done. All you've done is, is, is let other states that are producing nearby, you know, flood into your market and flood in at a less expensive price where they're paying no tax. They're, they're, they're not contributing anything. The, the money is actually leaving your economy from like the people that are buying it and going right back to the growers in some other state. So like how, how people don't look at this objectively and think, okay, like what is the actual macroeconomic impact of, of preventing, you know, legal cannabis sales in my market? Because like we don't agree with the, um, you know, the, the idea of people being able to make responsible choices for themselves as adults. It, it, it's so ridiculous because like all the unintended consequences are exactly what they don't want to happen, especially when you, know, you talk about like the conservatism that of, of, of um, encouraging um, uh, trade and encouraging sales and, and, and big business. All of a sudden now, like you, you've, you've basically handed it straight over to the criminals. Like, you know, here you go, silver platter, because, you know, we can't get out of our own way. So let's swing our focus back to our show here for a moment uh, from Philly Spectrum in uh, August of 1980. Uh, and uh, Brent Midland, who at this point has uh, just been in the band for about a year, maybe, is really starting to uh, flex his wings a little bit and uh, gets a moment in the sun here. So uh, go ahead, Dan, and play that next clip for us, please.
that is a man that could consume his canvas responsibly, no doubt. No doubt. And I, I love that song. You know, I, my second show ever at uh, Syracuse Carrier Dome, where I, I found myself on the bus for the first time, they came out and opened up that song in the second set. Now, conveniently, not really quite understanding the whole dead format and everything. I just thought it was a great tune and I was having a ball listening to it. It was a different sound, a different voice. And, you know, here, this is, uh, as we say, August of 1980. Uh, he had only played this song, uh, started playing the song uh, with the band uh, in concert in March of that year at the Cap Theater in uh, Passaic, New Jersey. Um, and really was his second uh, original tune that the band was playing. He had uh, performed Easy to Love You as late as, uh, as far back as August of 79, which was well within his first six months in the band. Um, and that was at the McNichol Sports Arena in Denver. Uh, both of those songs coming off the Go to Heaven album, which was his first album with the band. But, you know, I love it because here he was early in his 10 year run with the boys. And, and he was, you know, he was stretching out his wings early on. He wasn't holding back. Brent was not a shy guy. Yeah, I mean, that's a song that was not played all that frequently. You know, they brought it back a little bit in 1990 and played it a couple times. And you know, I think there's one or two versions from 89, but they, they picked that one up, then put that one away for a while. And yeah, as you said, that was one of the earliest things that Brent came out with. But then, you know, when the um, all the, the built to last Brent tunes came out, those are the ones they focused a lot more on, whether it was Blow Away or, or uh, some of the others uh, from that album. Far From Me and, and Easy to Love You got, you know, kind of you know, put to the side for a while, but it is a great tune. And, uh, and it's one that, I think should be listened to uh, to more often. So great choice on, on putting that one on the show today. Yeah, thank you. And, and you're right. Ultimately, it was a tune that was not played a lot. And after I heard it that time at Syracuse, I maybe only heard him do it one or two more times before it kind of got tucked away. But I love, you know, even these early versions, right? Because here, you know, here's Brent. He's the new guy in the group and he's, you know, going all out with one of his tunes. And and that section of Far From Me, you know, where he really starts to get into it. And, you know, you got Jerry and Bobby trying their best, you know, to give him some good background vocals. You know, they're not bad. And the, ooh, you know, that's wasn't always quite their style, but they, you know, they, they managed to play around with it. And, you know, it was nice to see that, uh, you know, that they gave him that opportunity, you know, to play his songs and, you know, give him that kind of support behind it. And yeah, you know, it, it, it's it, it's the beginning of the uh, era, but here we are, you know, 30 years after that era ended, and it's still sad to think that he's not around anymore and, and can, you know, well, of course, none of them are, but that he would, we missed him for the last five or six years of the band for sure, and uh, it, it's great stuff. It was always, uh, always fun to hear. Keep it moving right along, I think, in the show here for a minute, because we had a wonderful talk about marijuana uh, a little bit longer than we normally would, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to play all of my damn clips today. So, uh, you know, if I'm staying up and pulling them off of this show. Sometimes their show is, uh, is Grateful Dead centric and sometimes their show is cannabis centric, you know, so I don't think you really know what you're going to get. So, you know, anyone out there in the audience, you know, it's uh, sometimes you, you come in after three shows where we really focus on the Grateful Dead and then boom, we come back at you and, uh, and, and drop some cannabis on you. No doubt. So I love having those conversations, Larry, because, you know, you and I have very, very uh, different perspectives on a lot of the stuff. We live in different geographic regions. Yep. But, you know, you and I follow sort of the same stories all the time, but usually from a different perspective, which makes it, to me, like really, really fun to discuss this stuff with you. No, I agree. There's no doubt about it, you know. And, I, you know, I love the level of expertise that you bring to the table on the business side which my, my reactions are more, you know, emotional and from the gut with, you know, a certain amount of legal to the extent that exists, you know, all rolled into one. Maybe it's just not realistic to sit around and, you know, have this ideal of, of marijuana, you know, just really being a special thing and that anybody who touches it, you know, has to appreciate that. And of course, I can't say that 
you know, without uh, causing me to reflect back on, you know, good friend of the show, Terry Haggerty, and, you know, his his feelings about marijuana and the things that he did as he was growing his marijuana and, you know, the stories that he was willing to share with us about that. And uh, maybe it sounds kind of corny, you know, for people to take that attitude that uh, marijuana, it, it shouldn't be a commodity. It shouldn't be this. It, it should be the things that we, we, we grow for people we love and to share and and to do all of that stuff. But, you know, you and I both know that, unfortunately, as lovely as that all sounds and, you know, might really sink into your brain on a good tab of acid at, uh, you know, uh, the Fillmore West back in 1969, listening to the Sons of Champlin. Uh, today, it doesn't necessarily translate that way. So it's good to have people like Terry around because uh, they do remind us of that. And speaking of Terry, he was kind enough to share with me uh, that coming up on Wednesday, September 7th, so uh, just about a week from now, uh, he's going to have a very, very special uh, episode of a podcast uh, that's going to appear uh, at 5 p.m. of uh, Pacific time. And uh, it's going to be sponsored by his uh, Hagalicious uh, Marijuana Company. And it's going to be a virtual meet and greet with Terry, uh, free opportunity to sit and chat with him. And uh, there's probably going to be a little bit of music that he'll play as well. Uh, you can also follow it at www.streamstock.com. S-T-R-E-A-M-S-T-O-C-K dot TV. So tune in and please show support for Terry Haggerty. Uh, he's uh, got a wonderful musical legacy and just as important, a, a wonderful marijuana legacy. And we're always glad when he tells us what's going on so we can tell all of you. Well, I'll go out on a limb real fast and also say that Terry Haggerty is another person that can responsibly enjoy his adult use cannabis. So it's a... Uh... We should, we, should be, we should be giving shout outs to everyone that that, uh, that fits the bill today of, uh, you know, that they're the, the people that you want out there consuming adult use cannabis. No doubt. Yes, I, I would have to say that that uh, I'd be shocked to find that Terry was not otherwise firmly ensconced in that uh, in that camp. But going back to uh, the Grateful Dead and uh, Mr. Garcia from August of 1980, they cut loose here. We're going to play in one second a clip of Althea. Uh, that's still early on in its life. It's a beautiful, beautiful version of the song. And once again, to the kids I met at Folsom Field a few years ago who wanted to try to tell me that perhaps John Mayer plays it just a little bit better than Jerry. If you're listening, this is why the answer is no to your question. Uh, Dan, go ahead and spin it, please. The truth, baby, is your fine. Baby, I hope you don't get burned. When the smoke has cleared, she said, That's what she said to me. that song just love that song what a great tune i think that that tune was instrumental in the dead carrying their momentum from the end of the 70s into the 80s 
it was a tune and is a tune that appeals to the older deadheads. Uh, it's a tune that appeals to the newer deadheads, and it's going to be a tune that's going to appeal to deadheads who probably aren't even born yet, just because of how beautiful it is and you know how simple it is. It you know it, it tells a wonderful story, and um, you know when Jerry's singing it, it's. Uh, you know, he really loves it. The, the interesting thing about this Althea, Robin, and one of the reasons why I, I, I dropped it in here today is because this show has a really unique set list. The second set opened with Greatest Story Ever Told, which is kind of a rarity for them. Uh, and then they went in directly into Althea, and then from Althea went straight into Let It Grow. So the second set really opened with three songs in a row that you might almost automatically associate with the end of the first set. And um, I just found it, you know, this was still, you know, like we say, the early 1980s. I think a lot of these set lists with some of these newer songs were still just coming together. Um, not that Greatest Story was a new song by any means. But, you know, once we once we got past 82 or 83, we didn't re really see a whole lot of this anymore, right? Tunes pretty much took their place, for the most part, uh, pretty standard in, you know, various parts of the concert. And you can almost always... If an Althea was going to come up, it was going to be mid-song first set. You know, the the odds of seeing if, if they closed the first set without an Althea, nobody was spending the sec, set break thinking, man, maybe they'll open up or play it early in the second set. And yet here in 1980, you know, it makes an appearance on that side. And, uh, you know, the truth is I love that kind of freedom of moving around. And while I'm sure there's a little bit of security and, you know, for the band guys to know that at certain times there's certain songs that pop up in their head, uh, it's, you know, it, it's not unlike what Dead & Company does now where you have no idea where a song is going to wind up in the concert. And, you know, in a certain way, that was always the original level of The Grateful Dead. If you go back and look at some of their 60s or early 70s stuff, tunes jump all over the place. And uh, I like that. I do too, Larry. It's one of those things that, you know, you're very used to how certain set lists should be, at least in your mind. But I love the fact that you can look into uh, to different eras and it's completely um, different than what you expect it to be. So anytime I see second set songs in the first set or first set songs in the second set, that's one thing I think certain other bands, you know, Fish in particular does really well. They have no idea where it's going to show up. Like you, you might know that certain songs like a Julius is going to close a set or like a, um, a David Bowie is going to close a set. Character Zero is going to close the first set, right? But, you know, with The Dead, certain songs you were pretty well convinced. So, you know, if you heard Let It Grow, that was ending a first set. If you heard, you know, Adonis, that was ending a first set. If you heard a Deal, that was ending a first set. But when you saw those songs pop into slots that they didn't belong or you didn't think they belonged, uh, there's eras where they, they switched it up. And I think in 1980, you got a lot of that. And I think in this show in particular, you're absolutely right. It's, it was uh, full of surprises, which is great. Well, I mean, ultimately, that's what really keeps it fresh. The ability to be sitting in a show and predict the next few tunes was both a source of pride and frustration, right? Because the pride suggesting, I know these guys well enough now, I know them so well that I can tell you pretty much where they're going, but the frustration was I didn't always want to be right. Even if they were tunes that I was, you know, all the, I've been following the tour, man, they're going to do this as they're going to go into a morning do. They're going to give us a great sugar mag and the uh, Bob O'Reilly tomorrow never knows encore and boom, boom, boom. And they're all great tunes. I love every minute of it, but wouldn't it be wild if in the middle of all of that, they said, you know, fuck the sugar mag, let's throw in a Bertha here. You know, or just anything, you know, for the encore. Yeah, let's we, we haven't done West L.A. fadeaways and encore in a while. Let's do that. And you're right. You do get that with Fish. And that's one of the things I like about Fish is just because they haven't played a song in the first set doesn't mean you're not going to hear it in the second set or even possibly in the encore. 
not that I'm complaining by any means, but there was always a part of me that thought it would have been fun, you know, to see more mixed up set lists, especially shifting songs from a traditional first set to the second set or vice versa. Just, you know, really keep the fans guessing a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always love the surprise. So, uh, and I know you've got a couple other songs still queued up for us here. So what do you have next for us? Well, here, let's just keep rolling. Uh, next one is this Let It Grow that we would normally hear close out a set. Um, here it is. It's the third song in the second set. And it's, I mean, really, what a great place for this song. You know, the, I, I appreciate it as a set closer. And I, and I understand how they can really build up a good musical jam on it and take you right in to close out the set. But the beauty of seeing these songs outside of their normal spot is instead of hearing Let It Grow and thinking, I love this song, but it's the end of the set. I'm now hearing I love this song and I have no idea where they're going. And, you know, it just kind of even makes it all the more fun. Dan, uh, roll this one for us, if you could, please. It's always so much fun. And, and by the way, you're right. I, you know, as we reviewed the set list on this, and there's actually three different tunes uh, in this set list that you would expect to be first set closers. And only one of them actually got the nod being deal. But, you know, there's a promised land. I always expect to be a first set closer. And I always expect let it grow to be a first set closer. So th- the fact that you've got, you know, three mixed, you know, one mixed into the first set, one mixed into the second set. And then, uh, you know, the deal kind of sitting in a standard slot. Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's like getting to see, um, you know, look, three different openers uh, in, in a different slot or seeing like, you know, a Scarlet Fire and a China Rider and a Shakedown, you know, peppered in, into a set instead of being second set openers. No doubt. And, and you know, one of the things I always loved about Let It Grow, you know, is, is you, I think to fully appreciate, you know, these musical jams that they get into, it, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, it was, it was originally um, uh, written as part of a, 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 a structured song, right? With, with weather report and the whole, and, and the weather report, I love it. It was always nice with Jerry singing about the winter, spring, snow, and rain. And, you know, not unlike uh, the, the, the beginning of uh, cryptical envelopment, right? When Jerry steps in for a minute and, and sings, but it's always when they get to the Bobby part that, you know, it blows the top off and that's where you get the big jam, whether it's in the other one or whether it's here. And, and when you're listening to it within the context of this ain't, this song ain't closing out the set. Um, and they get into that, you know, that really hard jam in the middle there where, you know, Jerry really jumps in and Bobby's following right behind him. And I love that. That's 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 such a great part of the song. And it's so wonderful to be able to listen to it, uh, you know, knowing, boy, now instead of ending the set, this is a set builder, you know, and they're they're ratcheting up the energy here to take us to another level. And that's I think that's got to be great. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I'm really sorry I never got to see the full of the report suite. And it's one of my favorite things, especially from like 1973. You know, when I think about like what makes 73 specials, you know, weather report is, is usually it. And 
you're at the uh, the winter gray and falling rain um, portion of Garcia singing is a uh, it's so good. It's so melodic. It's so um, it, and even like with Donna as a as a duet on, on part of that uh, is you know fantastic. So um, you know the fact that we we kind of got left at the altar and all we got was the uh, the, the let it grow in the later years. Uh, I'll take it. You know you're missing out on some of the early you know really really pleasant um, uh, down tempo parts of it. But uh, but the jam that's in Let It Grow, especially the part that you played, are some of the best licks that Garcia had. And you know, like I, I was. Uh, by the way, the thing I loved about that song is the way that once they built it up, how they brought it back down to just such a um, a quiet close at the end of it, to the point that it was like pin drop silent inside the arena as Let It Grow would end. Instead of like ending on like you know a rocking like you know drum beat at the end of like a finale, the way like a Promised Land would be or a Deal would be, it just you know like would quietly fade out to the end and you know walk off stage. That's no, such a, a pretty way to end first sets. It, it, it is. And this time, uh, instead, they went from Let It Grow straight into uh, uh, a, a, another fan favorite, uh, a more traditional second set tune. Uh, he's gone. Dan, can you run that one really quick? Dad on a tin roof. Dogs in a pile. second set you see three first set tunes in a row and then boom you get a beautiful he's gone and and the fun part about this and obviously we can't play the entire concert but if you don't go back and listen to this whole concert you're missing out on some great music because for my impression of he's gone is it almost always would take you right into drums and so here i am you know listening to this show and but instead uh they make a quick turn and they dive into a nine minute other one which just has the crowd roaring and you know it's like Hey, we're throwing out all the regular uh, signals tonight. We're just going to play whatever we feel like playing, and and they go and they do a good job of that. Yeah, more importantly, you always expect the other one to come out of space. You don't expect it to go into drums. So you know, it's like it's the natural. Like I don't think there's a time where you're at a show where the end of space is happening that doesn't sound like they're going to go into the other one. I think like you know the odds-on belief is always like, oh, that sounds a lot like the other one. <laughs> yeah, so it's a. Uh, it's always you know really funny to, to, to see it go the other way, but a, a pre-drums other one is uh, is something that I would love to have seen. Absolutely, you know, I mean that that that's you know harkens back to you know to the, the late '60s, early '70s when you know they'd have a, a the the Bill Drum uh, solo leading into the other one and the whole cryptical envelopment or whatever they were going to do and just jam the hell out of it. And, you know, it, and it's great to have it there too. Um, and uh, it, it, this is you know. All of these songs are just, you know, they're so strong. It's a great set list. Jerry's playing so well. The, they're all uh, 
all around them and, uh, and everyone having a good time. And so that's a wonderful thing too. And we still have one more clip, which we'll play on the way out in a minute. But one thing I did want to just touch back on really quickly, because we mentioned it at the opening and then you never quite followed up with it. And rather than make the fans wait for their uh, twee pry three shows down the road, instead of just getting it tonight, let's just spend 30 more seconds, you know, extolling the virtues of O'Teal Burbridge and, you know, the impact that he's made on the jam band community. And, you know, it's easy to let these names roll off your tongue, right? But, oh, he's been playing with guys from the Grateful Dead. He played with the Allman Brothers. He played with Tedeschi Trucks. I mean, he's playing with, you know, basically, you know, some of the hottest rock and roll acts, some of the, you know, the most traditional acts out there. And he just seamlessly floats from one to the next and and nails his position and, and just does such a great job with it. Yeah, I mean, look, we... About 50 shows ago, we talked about Nicky Hopkins and the influence that Nicky Hopkins had on so many different bands and not, you know, really getting the uh, the recognition that he deserves. And I think I, I just heard recently they're going to do a biopic on Nicky Hopkins, which made me really happy because, you know, there's so many people have no idea who he is. I mean, O'Teal, obviously, in the jam band community knows who he is. But, you know, to, to think that you're a founding member of the Aquarium Rescue Unit with um, Jimmy Herring and uh, Colonel Bruce Hampton and Jeff Sype, and you just think like that alone is like, okay, that's super cool. But then you think that you're doing stuff like, you know, Bill Kreutzman taps you and says, hey, let's start a band. Let's start a trio with, with you and Scotty Murawski. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if you're a big Max Creek fan, but I grew up on Max Creek. And I think Scott Murawski is one of the most underrated guitar players, you know, that, that exists. And that's just such a cool pairing. And then you think that, like, Paige McConnell taps you to, to do Vita Blue with, uh, with um, you know, Russell Batiste. Like, these are, like, megastars in the industry. And then you think that, like, the two, of the, the, the two most legendary bands in the jam band space like over the years, being the Allen Brothers and the Grateful Dead, both tap you to be their uh, their player. And then, and then you think about all the side projects. Like he just did a side project with my girl Nikki Glaspie um, from Nth Power, if you're familiar with Nikki. And, and he was on the, um, the the Deepest End with Warren Haynes, you know, featuring just a handful of different bass players after Alan Woody passed. You name it, man. Everybody wants to play with this guy. And it's like, it, it, it's not just his ability to, uh, to play bass. It's his ability to sing. It's his ability to play other instruments. He's a drummer also. And just like the kindness that he, like, you, you can tell the way he plays. You can tell by the way he speaks, the way he holds himself. Like, this is a person that, like, you know, there's certain, like, basketball players or football players where everybody wants him on their team. And O'Teal is the guy that you want on your team. It is the, everything about the guy is, like, get him on stage with me. I want to play with this guy. I want to spend time. He, he like, and, and not to mention that he was raised by an older brother in Kofi Burbridge, who is insane also, like, as far as, like, a keyboard player. You know, like you, you think about certain families, like, you know, the way the Marsalis family is or, or, or some others that, that, you know, everyone in the family has got a specific talent. But, but by the way, he was a founding member of, of Tedeschi Trucks, you know, like along with uh, along with Kofi. Right. So this isn't like, you know, like Derek tapping you later. It's like Derek going, hey, we played the Allen Brothers together. And like, dude, I'm putting a new band together and I want you in it. You know, like, like think about the people I just named and, and think about you know, the last 20 years that all of them are like, not only do I want you, I want you like founding member of this band, you know, the, the Aquarium Rescue Unit, Dead and Company, Tedeschi Trucks, uh, B3. This is like hats off to to to, um, to O'Teal and O'Teal. Thank you so much for for everything you've done for our community because like if, if it's not said enough, you're the fucking man, man, uh, on so many levels. <laughs> Amen. You know, you can't say it any better than that. I mean, it, it's. 
you know, you can only imagine sitting down with him, but it would have to be like a full week interview because every day would be, okay, now tell us about your time with Colonel Bruce and now tell us about your time with the Allman Brothers and now tell us about your... I mean, he, he's a walking encyclopedia of, of the jam band world. Uh, and the best part about it is he's he's a featured uh, a member of that club, too. So, you know, uh, it, it's wonderful. And on his birthday, yeah, we should definitely take a moment to shout out. Yes. Think about the lead guitar players that he's got to say, like, these, these are the leads. He's gotten to play with John Mayer as a lead. He's gotten to play with Jimmy Herring as a lead. He's gotten to play with Scott Morawski as a lead. He's gotten to play with Derek Trucks uh, and, and Warren as leads. Right. These are the guys that like you go like, OK, you're the bass player who is who's on guitar. And that's your list. Like, holy shit, man. Like, really? <laughs> I, I, I can't I can't say it enough. Uh, you know, and then and then like to think that he was who was tapped to do like a road for the, you know, the Garcia band, um, you know, uh, getting back together. It's, it's, it's not just the ones that I've named. There are so many others. And he gives us time so freely. As I said, like I always thought Warren Haynes is the hardest working man in show business. Like everyone's played with Warren. But when you actually look at it in the last 30 years or 25 years, like who actually might, you know, rival him for, for the title of, of the most in-demand mus- musician, like he, he truly is like the, uh, the, the Nicky Hopkins of, of our generation in the jam band scene. He's, he's that good. He is. And uh, it, it's wonderful that we can uh, celebrate with him too. But with all this great talking, we have uh, pushed everyone to the limit here. So uh, let's uh, do a quick wrap up. Uh, We'll have another exciting show next week. Uh, I will uh, hopefully have all sorts of wonderful stories and reviews from uh, uh, my experiences at Sacred Rose. I'm excited to uh, have some initial experiences with quite it's going to be the first time I've gone to a festival uh, and looking forward to having the opportunity to hear at least three or four bands, if not more, for the first time ever. And uh, bands I've heard about for a long time and just have not uh, had a chance to do it. Of course, that includes Goose and Umphreys, uh, Disco Biscuits, and um, any number of people that are going to be playing there in addition to, to J-Rad and uh, uh, this amazing Phil Co. lineup for Friday night that we all just can't wait to see. So uh, that will be fun to talk about. Uh, what are your big plans, Rob? Any music coming up for you? No, I wish I was joining you on that. And I can tell you, I, I had a wedding on Sunday, but I had tickets to go see Goose at, um, up in uh, L.A. on Sunday night. And I couldn't go because of the wedding. And I, I got the review this morning. I heard they just absolutely just tore the cover off the ball. So, uh, you know, I still have yet to see those guys. I can't wait to hear your review on, on how Goose was. But, you know, the, the more I'm seeing from those guys, the more I'm, I'm completely and totally convinced they're the real deal. Uh, so, you know, have a great time this weekend, Larry. Uh, can't wait to hear about it next week. And, um, you know, I got to tell you, this is a lot of fun today. So, you know, thanks as always. Sure. No, I had a great time. Thank you so much, Rob. Um, and we will have all that stuff to talk about next week on our way out today. We're going to uh, close out with some, uh, one final song from our show in uh, the Spectrum in August of uh, 1980, a, a very uh, traditional Grateful Dead tune going down the road feeling bad. As always, immediately uh, very impressively played by Jerry. Uh, certainly a tune that he always uh, felt very strongly about, and, and I think it really reflects in this version. Uh, so it'll be a great tune to go out on. Thank you, everyone, again for listening. Have a great week. Be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Going down the road, be Going down the road, feeling bad. Going down the road, feeling bad. Bad, bad. Gonna be treated this way. Going down the road, feeling bad. Going down the road. 
listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi and I'm the founder and host of Cannachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.